Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. And if you are taking notes, the title of my message is From FaceTime to FaceTime. From FaceTime to FaceTime. Um, my wife and I, we've been, we're coming up actually on our 21st anniversary. We've been married a long time, which sounds crazy. Um, our marriage is uh, just about old enough to drink, uh, which is incredible. And uh, this is a, yeah, this is actually a picture of us. And I look at this picture and uh, I look at myself and I'm like, what happened? What? <laughs> Things went really, I feel like, um, I don't know if, you, uh, if this happens to you guys where you, you look at the version of yourself you sold to the woman and the version she's getting now, and you're like, I'm sorry. I didn't do it on purpose. I wasn't trying to trick you. <laughs> but thank you for your continued subscription renewal. You know what I mean? Um, and I feel like my wife still looks as gorgeous as she, she ever did. But at this stage, when uh, this picture, this picture is actually taken right after we got married, but around this stage of our life, uh, there was about a nine-month period right before we got married. We were dating and engaged where uh, we didn't live apart. We, we, we didn't live together. We lived apart. We lived uh, six hours away, um, two states away, and I hated it. It was horrible. And the only way we could really connect, because this is a time like, this is how old I am. This is a time pre-internet. Like, people really didn't have the internet. It wasn't really a thing then. And, uh, and so, and people didn't really have cell phones either. Cell phones were really, really new and super expensive. And I saved up money and I bought us each uh, a cell phone. And this was back when you only got so many minutes and like if they were in your network, you got all this sort of, like all stuff that doesn't exist now, right? Um, and, and so I, I got us each a cell phone for like $7,000 a piece. Uh, they were crazy. <laughs> And it was like, we're going to talk every single day, right? Because, you know, we're young and in love and, and, and we did. We talked every single day. But again, cell phone technology, new, wasn't great, didn't work great. And you end up spending half the call just making sure that the other person is still on the call, right? Which is so annoying um, because you end up spending half the time, uh, you know, talking and being like, yeah, what was that? What, what, what was that? Um, right after you said the most important part of my day was you cut out for like five minutes, so I have no idea what you just said. Um, you ever have that experience where you're talking to somebody and you are sharing something really deep and maybe you're even tearing up and crying about what you're saying and then, um, and then they call you in the middle of you explaining something to them and they're like, sorry, you, uh, you cut out there. And you're like, I don't even know how to go back into it. I don't even know where we cut off. And uh, <sighs> thanks for being there for me. And they're like, I actually wasn't there for you. Uh, I wasn't there that whole time you were talking. And it was just so frustrating. It was frustrating because uh, it was like we had a certain kind of connection, but it wasn't really the connection we wanted. And it was a lot of just like, are you there? I can't hear you. Did you hear what I just said? You, oh, hold on, you cut out for just a minute. Can you repeat that phrase? What was that? And it was just a lot of that back and forth. And it was infuriating. We both hated it. We hated it right from the start. And we still did it every single night <laughs> for nine months time because... You know, the thought that we had was, you know, something is better than nothing when you don't have the real thing. And so you're willing to settle for it, right? You're willing to sort of stomach it and, and sort of like wrestle through it because the relationship is that important. But it wasn't enough. 
Because what happened during that time period was that the distance made us feel distant from one another. And it often does in almost every sort of relationship. And if you didn't already know this, you learned it in 2020, right? <laughs> How much distance, physical distance, can make you feel distant. COVID forced us to do almost everything from a distance, right? We chatted and commented and texted and tweeted and Zoomed and zelled each other. <laughs> and it was so convenient. We hated it. We hated every minute of it because we just wanted to be together. We wanted to be face-to-face and side-by-side. And it wasn't even like we completely lost touch, right? Because we could talk to each other over the phone or online or stalk each other over social media, which we all did. But it wasn't the same. And I don't know if you remember when that moment where you first got to go and be with other people after having to be apart from them for so long. And in an instant, you were like, oh, I remember this. It felt different from the first moment, looking them in the eye, sort of touching their arm when you're talking to them, feeling their presence. In those moments, those first few moments together, it was like, oh, man, I missed this so much. It felt connected. It felt close. And that's partially because we, it's just a principle about humanity. We tend to feel close to the people we're close to. In other words, certain levels of intimacy require proximity. Like when we are close in physical proximity to other people, it fast tracks or increases the likelihood that we can experience relational and emotional intimacy with those people. And if you've ever dated long distance, Um, like my wife and I did, and then you finally moved uh, into the same city where you were like living back close to each other again, you realize how much that changes everything. Like being so far away and then having closer access and being closer in proximity, just overnight, everything changes. And once you're with that person in person every single day, you, you suddenly all the things that you were able to ignore over FaceTime, right, they come into clear focus when you're face-to-face. And it's like a double-edged sword, right, because you realize how much more amazing and annoying (laughs) that person is up close. You're like, wow, I have missed a lot. And some of it, I, I, I really, I do miss. And others of it, I, I kind of wish we could go back, you know, and, and just, you know, and, and what the, I think the most uncomfortable part about that is you realize they're having the same realization about you, yeah. right? There's some things where they're like, oh my gosh, it's just so great, whatever. And there's other things where they're like, yeah. And you're like, I've been doing this every day for nine months. Okay. Well, I didn't, I wasn't privy to that. And you're like, yeah, yeah. So you just need to maybe go on the other side of the room. Cause this is how I do. And this is uncomfortable, right? This is the, the, the weirdness of being a person and knowing that we want people close, but then when we get them close, and, and sometimes it feels like they're maybe too close, and then they're seeing everything, which feels like they know too much, and then we start to feel insecure and uncomfortable. And this is why some of us, we have this pattern of when people feel too close, we want to hold them at a distance. And then we become insulated, which sort of protects ourselves, but then not only do we become insulated, we also become isolated, which we don't like. And the reason for that is because distance makes us feel distant. It's how it works. And I bring all this up because I wonder, 
because this is such a, a relational reality, I wonder if you have ever experienced this on a level, not with just a, a human, but with the divine. I wonder if you've ever felt distant from God, like there is something between you, like there's something that is off in your soul, and you find yourself sort of lobbing prayers into the atmosphere, but like a, a bad FaceTime connection, it feels like God's face is frozen. And, and you, you have no idea, like, if he hears you and what he thinks or feels about you, if he actually cares about what it is you're saying because you're asking questions and feeling like you're not getting any answers. And you wonder, like, can, can, can you see me? Because I can't see you. I'm, I'm trying to reach out. I'm, I'm trying to have a, a long-distance connection. I'm trying to do the best I can, but it doesn't feel like it's working. And over time your interactions can start to feel like obligations, like you're just going through the motions, like you're just checking a series of boxes on some sort of religious to-do list because what else are you gonna do? Because you have the same rationale that we all do in relationships. Something is better than nothing, right, if you can't have the real thing. And I, I don't know what the real thing is with God. I, I, I guess this is as good as it gets. I guess this is as good as it is, just feeling the weirdness and trying and then, just hoping, crossing your fingers, that something is connecting on some sort of level. And if this sounds familiar to you, if you've ever had this experience in your relationship with God, you are in good company. Because I think in a lot of ways, this is a description of the second movement of Scripture, right? We have of, which is in the garden, and then we have this moment in which sin enters the story of humanity, and we enter into this season of between, where there is something between us and God. And the entire sort of uh, section of Scripture that is the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 onward is this long-distance relationship between humanity and God. And then by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, there's a lag time between when the Old Testament stops and the New Testament begins. There's this long-distance connection that people have with God, and then the phone goes dead. 400 years of silence. And then almost out of nowhere, the New Testament picks up with an angel appearing to a woman and telling her that God is about to cross the distance between, take on human form, and live among us because he can't stand to be without us. And people are stunned when they hear this message. I want you to think about this for a minute. God so wanted closeness with us that he was willing to limit his own divinity by taking on humanity. In other words, like he, he became one of us so that he could be with us. In fact, this is the nickname that the, the, the parents, the human parents of Jesus raising him are instructed to give him. We see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, in the very beginning of the Gospels of the New Testament, that they're told, call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is a new idea. God is with us right here in our midst. And what is mind-blowing about this is that even though it was our sin that put the distance between us and God, God doesn't do the thing that most of us would do. Like sit back and be like, you were the one who screwed up, so you're the one who's gonna make the first move and apologize. You're the one who needs to cross the distance that you created 
and fix the thing that is messed up between us. But God doesn't approach humanity this way. God makes the first move. He comes close, which is a notion that is so astounding to all of humanity that we decided that we were going to stop and meditate on it and celebrate it every single Christmas. This is the story of God becoming human, coming to earth, being born of people. And what's wild is when you read through the Gospels, the story of Jesus' birth is outlined in such incredible detail. And then nothing. It's like he's born, and then there's this like little moment where he, uh, you know, his parents get scared, and they got to move to Egypt. And then there's like another little tiny story about Jesus you know, being in the temple as like a real little boy, and they're like, man, this kid knows a lot. And then nothing, nothing for 30 years. And then suddenly the story picks back up, and he's a man. Which means that Jesus lived basically 30 years of life off the record. And if you're like me, you're like, what was he doing all that time? Living. Just living his life. Which probably brings up another question, like, why didn't anybody write it down? And here's the most logical answer to this. It wasn't that interesting. Have you ever thought that? It's like, man, I would have really, would have loved to have known, like, what he was doing, what it was like. I can tell you guys. Um, he learned how to walk and talk, and he did chores, and he learned to trade, and he helped support his family, and he ate meals, and he learned uh, to sit and be bored and listen to his relatives tell really long stories that go nowhere and tell unfunny <laughs> jokes during awkward family dinners. Right? He learned, like, he learned that you just got to stand there when like a relative you don't remember comes and pinches your cheeks and starts crying. I was like, I remember when I changed your diaper. And you're like, I don't know you, lady. <laughs> That's what he was doing. And there's something profound here in the fact that we don't know the details. Like Jesus was so committed to being with humanity that he was 100% present in moments he knew no one would ever document. And man, in, in our day and age, that's amazing yeah. because we document everything. Pixar didn't happen. <laughs> if you don't have a reel, I don't know that you really went there. <laughs> I don't know that you really did it, right? We feel the need to document everything. And yet God, who like would arguably would say, we want every moment documented. He was like, I mean, some of these moments really aren't documentable. <laughs> They're not that great. And this is, I think, what, God's love looks like, that he chose to be with you, even in the mundane, unfun, unrecorded moments in your life. This is the love of God. Not just that God loves you and forgives your sins, but that God wants to be with you, doesn't have to, chooses to be with you in the moments where you're being boring, where you're doing stuff that's not that interesting where you are not fun to be around. In moments where you're just like, we should get a pick. And he's like, not really. We don't need a pick of this. This is not that great. But I want to be here with you because I love you. God is present in your everyday joy and pain, in your love and loss, in your work and play, in, in the most meaningful and completely forgettable moments of your existence. 
And there is a word for this kind of witness, intimacy. Intimacy is being comfortable and connected with someone without the compulsion to impress or entertain them. Which is why for some of us, we're like, oh, that's what it is? Yeah, I didn't feel that till like the third year of marriage. <laughs> and we've done like, I guess, intimate things, but I didn't feel intimate because I was still playing a game. I was still living insecure. I was still trying to entertain and put on a face and prove that I was worth being with. I couldn't really just be and be myself. God comes close to bring us intimacy. This is what we all want, but it's not often how our relationships feel. Most of our relationships don't feel like this, including our relationship with God. Mine doesn't. I don't always feel comfortable and connected to God at every imaginable moment. Sometimes I feel like I have to impress him to get his attention. That maybe I need to do good, uh, do better, do something different, do something amazing that God is going to be like, oh, wow, great job. But what we see with Jesus in the Gospels coming to be with us is that the people that he chose to share his life with were not really that impressive. They, They weren't leaders or politicians or influencers. They were regular people living regular lives. And, and his invitation to them was, wasn't achievement based. It was relationally based. This is what he says. He says this over and over again when he's recruiting people to come Um, and be with him. He says this, Matthew chapter four, verse 19 is an example. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me. Like, let me just bring this into like modern vernacular. He's like, hey, let's spend a lot of time together. How do you feel about that? Like just doing whatever it is we're doing. And sometimes it'll be miraculous and mind-blowing because, you know, I'm I'm God. Um, But most of the time it won't be, you know, because we're all just people too. And that's the point. All the moments matter. And if we do them together, you're going to learn from me by just being with me, and eventually you're going to become like me. This is Jesus' aim. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, if you read through the Gospels, most of what they're doing, they're just like walking around. They walked around, they told stories, they laughed, they went to weddings, they took naps and boat rides and naps on boat rides. (laughs) They had dinner parties and drank wine and watched Jesus fight with his mom. And one time he gave them all pedicures. You know, like dude stuff, okay? I wonder if anybody's connected those dots before. He's like, I'll wash your feet. And they're like, mm, I don't really know. He's like, do you want the ankle and the calf massage as well? That's a little bit extra. But I'm willing to go that extra mile for you because I'm Jesus. Some of them got the clear coat, but some of them went with a color. And I, I think that's okay. Because when you're rocking those sandals, you want to, you want a little bling sometimes. And Jesus knows that. Why, why was it just like normal stuff? Because God's goal is with. God's goal is to communicate to people that all the moments matter. And, and these people that, that Jesus had recruited to be with him, he wasn't just recruiting followers, he was recruiting friends. But not everybody appreciated his relational approach. In fact, his, his critics called him this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, 
They called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners, which hilariously never tried to deny. He's like, what? Anyway, uh, and just went on. (laughs) Why wouldn't he refute it? Because the people that they're like, you shouldn't be hanging out with those people. Those were the very people that he was there for. Because the reality of it is, Jesus came to be with the people that nobody else wanted to be with in a way nobody wanted to be with them. Okay. In fact, that's what his first sermon was about. And it caused a riot. He preached his first sermon and, and, and a bunch of people were like, we should kill this guy. Which just sort of brings up a question. If you were Jesus, if you were God in human form, what would your first sermon be about? You only have since the beginning of everything to think about it, what would it be? Would you start with like heaven and hell, the definition of marriage, which political party heaven supports, the importance of tithe, why lust is naughty, you know, or why you should read your Bible every day, which doesn't exist yet. Like which, what would yours be about? Because spoiler alert, he doesn't talk about any of this stuff. This is what he does. Luke chapter four, verse 17 he goes into the synagogue, which is sort of like their, their church, and he walks up to the scroll, which is essentially the, the law, the, what we know as the Old Testament. Verse 17, it says this. He unrolled the scroll to where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim that the captives will be released, the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and the Lord's favor has come. And then he said, the scripture that you just heard has been fulfilled this very day in me. In other words, like Jesus sat down, he reads him a prophecy and he's like, that is about me and that's what I'm here to do. Which brings up a really big question. How are you gonna do it? Jesus is like, this is what I'm gonna do. And so if we look at the rest of his ministry, it should be the way in which he intends to do these things. How is Jesus planning to bring good news to the poor and help blind, the blind to see and set the oppressed free? By telling them what to do? By rising to political power? By passing all the right laws? By punishing the sinners? No, no, no. That wasn't his plan. This is what he does. This was his plan. By spending a lot of unhurried time with people. Why? Because the only thing that can take the presence, the place of sin, is the presence of God. And God hadn't really been fully with people since the Garden of Eden. But this is what God understands, that the first step in restoring paradise is God reinstating his presence. Connecting with, not commanding to. And we typically think of it as the other way around. I'm going to command you to do the right things. And if you execute that list properly, then I will connect with you. This is not the way that Jesus goes about setting the world right. Instead, after we push his presence away and cause a distance between us, he puts his divinity on a shelf partially And he encapsulates a human body and he comes close and he steps into our lives, our world, so that he can connect with. And it's out of that connection that peace and witness 
becomes real again. It's an amazing strategy, one we probably wouldn't do. Because here's what Jesus understood that I think we often miss. All sin stems from a relational problem and can only be solved with a relational solution. When people do selfish, sinful things, it's because they are living out of fear that their core needs are not going to be met. That there is a relational gap that they are going to have to forcibly make up by taking matters into their own hands. And if all sin is ultimately a relational problem, Jesus is like, I will fix it. Well, by telling everybody what they're doing wrong? No, no, no. By bridging the relational gap that's causing them to do all these things that they don't need to do in order to experience something they've been chasing since the garden. If you've ever worked with kids, you know that like, there's always one kid in the group that is just like, they're a challenge, okay? That's a nice way to say it. Um, they don't follow the rules, they don't do what they're supposed to do, and they pull all the other kids into their rebellion. It's, it's infuriating. Your knee-jerk reaction is to scold them, right? To tell them why they're wrong, to pull them aside, to punish them. And if you've ever done this, you realize it often does not give you the outcome you're after. Oftentimes when you crack down on that kid, they just become worse. And what I've learned over time working with, with kids and with people, I worked um, in childcare for like 10 years um, right out of college. And what I learned is, uh, uh, astounded me at first that if you lean in and you give that kid some attention and you get to know them and you develop a relationship and you take a genuine interest in their life, what is wild is their behavior sometimes actually corrects itself. And the behavior that doesn't, you now have passport into their life to make complicated corrections because they trust you. Because they have a relationship with you. You realize that the best solution isn't a harsh correction, but a relational connection. And this is Jesus' approach to humanity. And it frustrated people who just wanted Jesus just to tell people what to do. Because he just wasn't interested in doing that. Like, if you read through the Gospels, those looking for a simple black and white list of right and wrong so that they could determine who was in and who was out, they were annoyed at Jesus' nuanced illustrations, explanations, and invitations to just live a life with God. And I would say that not much has changed. People that are still just looking for simple black and white, right and wrong, so they can say, you're out and you're in, these people are still frustrated with Jesus and his relational approach to care for people, to be full of grace and forgive freely and serve the poor and advocate for the oppressed and overwhelm sin with sacrificial love so that everybody can gain access to the witness of God. And that actually, that's what his, all of his miracles were about. They weren't generic magic tricks to wow audiences. They were deeply personal and often highly intimate. They, most of the time they involved him coming close and looking someone in the eye and putting a hand on their shoulder and kindly communicating something to the effect of like, I know you feel really overwhelmed and alone right now, but God is with you. 
He sees you. He understands what it is you're going through, and he cares deeply about you. And I know you are skeptical of those words, so I will prove it to you with my actions. And what is even more amazing about this approach to me is not all the miracles were life and death. They, they weren't all miracles that most of us would do. I'll just be real with you guys. We would just be like, if I was God, I'd be like, not that important. Have you ever been in a situation where you, there's something going on in your life and you wanted to ask God about it, but then you thought, like, never mind. God doesn't care about that. <laughs> this is not that big. I mean, like, he only answers prayers about big stuff, like cancer or people getting saved or, like, the outcome of a Lakers game. Like, real big stuff. Where were you this season, Lord? I don't understand. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's why this, like, this train of thinking actually doesn't really pan out. You know what Jesus' first miracle was? Turning water into wine. And there was no altar call afterwards, just FYI. Nobody got saved afterwards. It wasn't like thousands of people were like, oh, my God. Oh, God, when you turn it into an open free bar, I just, that, I knew I need to surrender my heart and soul. That, like, most people didn't even notice it happened. A couple caterers, some drunk guests, you know, the, the couple that, like, it was their party, the hosts. But here's the thing. The people that he did the miracle for, it was a huge deal to them. He cared deeply about them, and he met their need for booze. And what stood out about Jesus, I think, was his willingness to be there for people when they, they most needed him, no matter what they needed him for. And if you look closely at his life, you realize that relational withness wasn't just something Jesus knew we needed. It was something that he knew he needed. The night that Jesus um, was to be betrayed and arrested and tried and, and eventually murdered, he went to this garden to pray. Because, I mean, you're starting to figure out God has a weird thing for gardens. But he didn't go there alone. He invited his friends to stay there with him. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, it says that he told them that my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And then he says to his friends, stay here and keep watch with me. And I think sometimes we over-spiritualize this. We strip the humanity out of this moment. But this is Jesus begging his friends to be with him. Because here's the reality. Even Jesus needed friends. And you were not better than him. It's a base human need. And Jesus was fully human and fully God. And in this moment, he was overwhelmed and hurting and didn't want to be alone. Because he, he wanted, he needed to, to, to feel like someone was pulling for him. Like he wasn't going to have to face the darkness that was coming for him by himself. And I wonder if you have ever been in, in such a, a dark place that you just wanted someone to be with you. Like you didn't even want to talk about it. You're not even sure that you would have, have been able to put it into words if somebody forced you to. Like the emotional agony of that moment felt like an ice pick just chipping away at your gut. And all you could say was like, stay. Like Jesus, like, stay here with me. 
this is the headspace that Jesus is in that night, and his friends stay, and then they fall asleep, and then they run away. And so in the worst moment of Jesus' life, his closest friends abandon him. And then as he hangs on the cross dying for the sins of the world to eliminate the between, God and us, something that I don't fully intellectually understand happens. God turns his back on Jesus. God, in other words, so loved the world that he allowed himself to feel the pain of being abandoned by God. And then he promises that we will never have to experience it for ourselves ever again if we place our faith and trust in him. In fact, the last thing he says to his followers is this, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. He says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is Jesus' promise, that, that like, he's not gonna remove his witness from us, always. Not sometimes, not just when you have a good day or, or do the right thing or remember to read your Bible or are, are listening to worship music or have at least a three-day streak where you've not done that thing that you said you would never do, but you do a lot, and you've done it again. Not just in those moments. He's saying, like, I'm with you always, including when you can't sense or feel me, including when everything that is happening in your life is screaming at you that I have abandoned you. That is a lie, because in reality, what we see in Scripture is that God is most powerfully present with us in those moments where it appears that he is most obviously absent. And here's the big question that I want to throw at you today. What if you believed this? What if you believed that God was with you? How would that change everything about you? When I was in my early 20s, I got flown to a job interview, which was like a big deal. I was like, whoa, can't believe this is happening. And it was a job that they probably, you know, shouldn't give me. Um, I didn't have really any experience. I was still finishing my education. And um, I'd, I'd, I'd interviewed multiple times and the organization was really big and they were going to fly me across the country. And I, even, I remember even telling them on the phone, are you sure you guys want to do this? I don't know. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we want to bring you out. We're going to bring three candidates out. We'd like to bring you out. And they allowed me to bring my wife with me. And we flew across the country from Iowa to Arizona. And I remember, like, feeling nervous and just like I was going to be a disappointment to these people. And there was this one moment that sticks out in my mind where we were sitting in this rental car. And it was me and my wife. And we were about to go into this restaurant where we're going to have a group interview with all these people. There's going to be like 13 people sitting around, like evaluating me, deciding if I should get this job. And I was starting to panic a little bit because in my head, I'm like, I'm a fraud. I shouldn't be here. They're going to see that like, I don't even deserve to be in this conversation and I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to embarrass my wife. I'm going to embarrass my family. That's like praying for me. Like I, like this is just, and, and as all this stuff is, is going on in my head, my wife who's sitting in the, the passenger seat can tell I'm like sort of panicking and she just reaches over and she's like, Are you okay? And I'm just like, uh-uh. <laughs> and she takes my hand and she just says, I'm here. 
And there was like a, a calmness that, that sort of came over me. And I don't know if you've ever had this moment where somebody says very few words, but you realize that there's like a bunch of words behind those few words. And it's kind of like, I love you. I'm here. I'm for you. Like, I'm not going anywhere. No matter what happens in there, like, I'm not going to run away. You know, I've seen all the unimpressive stuff. And I, I still want to be with you. Like, let the pressure dissolve. And that was all I needed. That was all I needed to go in and be myself, knowing that she was with me. And, and I get that maybe some of you are thinking, like, good for you, you know? My marriage is not like that, okay? Um, in fact, I'm, I'm divorced. I'm single. I'm 12. You know what I mean? Like, whatever your thing is. <laughs> and if that's true, how are you divorced at 12? That is... I want to know about your life experiences. You have seen some stuff. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that Jesus is always with you. And I, I just, I wonder how might your life be different if you lived with an acute awareness of Jesus' withness. Like, it, it, how would your life feel different if you were aware at all times that Jesus was with you? Like when you're stuck in traffic, when you're sitting through the second hour of a meeting that you're like, this could have been an email. This could have been an email. When your boss calls you out in front of the whole team and you're like, man, this could have been a closed-door conversation. When you're sitting there waiting for your kid's practice to end and you are bored out of your mind. When you're halfway through that awkward first date, when you're heartbroken because you remembered that that person that you never really wanted to imagine life without is going to miss yet another birthday when you're cleaning up dog puke, when you're trying really hard not to say something that you can't take back to your mother-in-law. In all these moments, God is, is with you. And how would that change the way you do you? I, I, I think we should experiment with this together. And, and so there's something I want to invite you to do with me this week. Um, on your way out, we are going to give you a, a red rubber band to put on your wrist and, um, like, it's nothing, it's nothing, like, weird. You're not going to be, like, every time you lust, snap yourself. We're not going to do that, okay? <laughs> Some of you are like, my hand's going to fall off. That's not, listen, I'm not trying to put that on you, all right? This is what it's for, okay? I want you to wear it this week, and every time you glance at it, I want you just to whisper to yourself out loud, like, Jesus is with and for me right here, right now, in this moment. Like, just as you're going throughout your day and you kind of, like, glance down, or just pausing and intentionally, Jesus is with and for me right here, right now, in this moment. And let that awareness just sort of penetrate your soul, wash over you. Watch what it does to you as you live the next moment and the next and the next. I think the withness of Jesus is one of the most powerful things we can ever experience. And it's what he came to give us. I think more than you even memorizing all the things that Jesus said, all the things that Jesus wants you to do, the biggest thing that he wants you to know is that he is with you. That's enough to change everything about you. And that's what I'm gonna pray over you this week, that, that God makes that real to you.
in a way that like when you're in your most panicked moment, it's it sort of you feel his hand on your shoulder just saying like, hey, hey, I'm here. And you feel the weight and the comfort of everything that those words mean wash over you and direct you to be more calm, to be more secure, to be more bold, to be more you, to be more loving, sensitive, compassionate, all the things that you want to be in that moment, you have the power to be because God is with you. Would you bow your heads across this this room? I just wanna pray this into your life today on this Father's Day. God, thank you so much that you chose to close the gap of between by being with. Thank you that you inserted yourself into our story, that you clothed yourself in humanity, that you came to be a person, even limiting your own divinity so that you could know what it feels like to be us, to be tempted like us, to walk in our shoes, to experience the pain physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, of disconnection and rejection, and to ultimately set the world right by paying the price for our sin, absorbing into yourself everything that created the distance between us. To cross that chasm, to invite us into a relationship with you, that there can be no interruption in the witness between us. God, I pray that we would be aware of that this week, that we would feel it, and that we would live according to that reality because it is what's true. May we act like it's true. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.